Hey, it's Lisa Kordoff and I, like many of you, have had a rough few years and somewhere along the way, just felt like I lost my spark. So it is time for something radical. I have pulled the kids out of school for five months. We've strapped on the backpacks and are heading away for an overseas adventure. (laughs) Who knows what's to come? Thank you for joining me as I take Conversations on the Road. excited for people to meet you. So this is Tony Ann. Hello. <laughs> and we're sitting at her kitchen table in Munich. And you are repairing my daughter's bathers. Trying to. With needle and thread. <laughs> and people who have been following along on stories on Instagram will know who you are because I've been talking about coming to Munich and being with your family. We've been friends since 1998. Um, yeah. Yep. My first year out of school. My second year. And we both got the same job. Yep. Because the, the managers couldn't decide who to hire, so they hired both of us. And we've been friends. Yeah, ever, ever since. since. <laughs> and um, it's just been the best being here. And the other night we were sitting outside. Well, no, I mean, which trip was it? We've been here three times now. And I think it might have been the first time. And we were talking. The sun was shining. The sun was shining, yes. It's one degree mm-hmm. outside right now. The sun was shining then. And we were talking heaps about a lot. We were. And I had wished that I had put on the mic and I hadn't. But now I'm leaving tomorrow, so we've put it on again. So we need to recreate the magic <laughs> is all I'm asking. So can you explain what your job is so that everyone knows your background i'm a teacher primary school teacher have a master's in education and i work at the international school here in munich at munich international school and my role at the international school is as an instructional leader and as a teacher as well yes You've done about 40 bajillion extra courses and are massively yes. overqualified. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you're going to China. Yes, so I'm also an international school evaluator. Um, <laughs> so I evaluate international schools and I'll be going to China to evaluate an international school there in a few weeks. Um, what else do I do? I started my own company, which I just recently shut down, and that was around spelling next education I just finished another course I finished um, <laughs> I got my certificate of school management and leadership at Harvard you're an underachiever is how I would describe you I like to keep busy you do you do like to keep busy I, I think, like the international education scene so I that keeps me traveling but I think also you are massively passionate about education yes you are just the it's my hobby if I have any questions about the children or something's going on for them, like, tones, tones, what would I do? What's happening here? <laughs> and you've always got a fresh perspective. And with my eldest starting high school this year and just launching into what feels like an anxiety-inducing, <laughs> for him, most, like, oh, yeah. next stage of our lives... I had explained on the podcast a big part of this trip was also just kind of having a think about 
how things could be done differently. Is this the right way? I don't know. I I look at the education system sometimes and I think, is it actually preparing our kids for the future that they're going to be walking into? I realized on this trip, my kids heard about, I mean, they heard about conversations when we were in Sweden about the people, Swedish people buying houses up north to secure their water future. Yeah, we they learnt in Oslo about how they really try to encourage the use of electric vehicles and mm-hmm. subsidise certain things there because you know greenhouse gas. But they were they were noticing environmental initiatives everywhere. They're mm-hmm. concerned about climate change. Bushfires started in Australia that they knew about. A war started in Israel. Australia voted no. Like just that's just on this trip. Yeah. <laughs> but they are taking actually a lot in. And he actually had a moment where he was really upset. Like, why do I need to learn this stuff when the world's going to be, you know, whatever anyway? Like, yeah. and and I said, but we need, we, need, we need kids who understand science. We need kids who understand these things, who can solve problems. The thing is, I think the one thing that you can be certain of is change. Yeah. And whether or not that's good change or negative change is a matter of perspective. Do you think that schools, and I already know the answer that you're going to give me, but do you think schools are, and and curriculum, the general curriculum is kind of adapting to? Yeah, well, I think education is at a point of pivot. Right. Right? I, I really do think it's at a turning point. The education systems need to adapt and alongside with what's happening in the world the major thing that's happening in the world is is the ai ai insurgents and and the the rate and the speed at which ai is developing is is much much faster than than any government system is going to be able to to keep up with mm. and so they need to create systems where they're not reliant on knowledge mm. and that they're reliant on adaptability and and relying on change as a constant. So how are you seeing AI impacting, I mean, your primary? Yep. Where are you seeing it already kind of infiltrating and how are you preparing or like so, what's going on? I mean, we have a research group of teachers at school who are investigating AI and how it can impact our systems at school. And so those systems could be the administration systems, those systems mm-hmm. could be the assessment and reporting system. It could be the way teachers plan. It could be the way students write and communicate. It could be how information is gathered. So there's many different ways that AI can infiltrate and schools need to make decisions as to what system they want AI to influence and how much. And some of those decisions will be dictated by privacy laws Mm-hmm. Some of those decisions will be dictated by um, intellectual property rights and some of those decisions will be dictated by how social media governs mm. a lot of what the kids are exposed to. And so our school, we are looking at the moment, how do we how do we cite chat GPT? Like mm. a, a, how do the kids... Like in a bibliography. Like in a, in a bibliography, at what point... Um, like any other resource that you Mm. use there's an an element of academic honesty Mm. and so we have to teach kids that chat gpt is a resource that Mm. needs to be cited 
And so that's where we're at with that now. We're just trying, and that's a Band-Aid, that's catching up, yeah. right? So the, the tool existed and then we think, oh, my, how do we teach the kids how to use this responsibly mm. and how do we teach the teachers to use this to make their lives easier as well? Because um, this is happening so fast, is it going to be down to each school because I would imagine that what's going to have to go through a, at a government level for government schools or all that, that's that's going to take ages to filter down, wouldn't mm. the policies or? It depends on the country that you're talking about. And most countries have pretty strong privacy laws regarding minors. Mm. And so that takes out a whole heap of AI technology. But will the kids be using it? The, what the parents do is uh, up to okay. them. Yeah, so you're just talking about And so I'm just provide. talking about what the school will provide. Our, our biggest concern and, and our main point is to keep our kids safe. Mm. And we need to make sure that their data is protected and their privacy is protected. And so if we can't guarantee that, then whatever app it is will, will not be used. Mm. And so that takes off the table a lot of stuff for Europe. Okay. But what we do use, for example, ChatGBT, you don't need a sign-in, you don't need a login, mm -hmm. and it is how you get your information. And that information itself is based on the majority. Yeah. Right? And so it's really, really complex. And I think government systems or how the education well, education is values-based. So what you learn in history and what you learn in geography is going to differ greatly between whatever country you are being taught in. Mm -hmm. And I think the emphasis is going to shift soon from a knowledge base to a skills base. It has to because history changed on Saturday. Mm -hmm. right? A major mm -hmm. change happened and that's going to continue to happen. It's not, that's not just going to be an isolated incident from last weekend. And so we need to think about what's important for a historian right now, mm. right? And so what skills does a historian need? That skill set will change as how we get information and how we get our primary and secondary sources change. What skill set do you need to be a geographer? And that's going to change all the time as climate change changes. Mm -hmm. What we know about that, the science behind it, it's changing. And so they need the skills to trial things, test things, evaluate things. The design cycle is going to become one of the major parts of all subject areas. The design cycle, what do you mean? The design cycle is a cycle of, of design where people think of a problem that's presented. Mm. Um, they think of a solution collaboratively or alone. I think of creative ways to to solve the problem choose one or two of those creative ways and implement it mm. reflect on it evaluate it assess it and then improve it go and again. then go through again and and that design cycle can be applied at every grade level where we applied in grade three they apply it in their unit on biomes they apply the design cycle on their unit on economies they apply the design cycle on their unit of forces and motion and physics. Wow. And yep. that goes through everything. So design something that's going to prove that the law of inertia 
or just prove the law of inertia through the design cycle. Design your own experiment, test it. How would you improve upon it? And so going through a design cycle, they are then figuring out what is something that I can, they have to research what is inertia to begin with and Mm. and have that body of knowledge and then go out into, in our case, the school environment and see what is an example of inertia that I see Mm. and then test it, make a model and test it themselves. I love that. Because I do, I I mean, I think that they're going to have to be adaptable. They're going to have to pivot quickly. They're going to have to solve very big problems. Um, I love that. Can we talk about, because we were also discussing this big time, the increasing uh, diagnoses of neurodivergent kids in schools. And I was loving hearing about how you are adapting class lessons or just the classroom in general Mm -hmm. you know and I'd love you to share a little bit about that because I know it's just it's a growing yeah so neurodiversity is the new norm yep and I don't think any teacher at the moment can expect to have a classroom that they can walk into and give a whole heap of worksheets to and have everyone (laughs) sit down and do the same thing yeah it's an unrealistic expectation of any educator now. And so what we've adapted is a philosophy of universal design for learning, which has shortened for UDL, and that comes out of Harvard, and we've all been trained in it. But the principles of, of UDL is that it's the teacher's job to meet the kids where they are. And so we have curriculums and we have stages of progression and and the students are going to be at all different points of those and it's the teacher's job to ensure that they somehow achieve those standards and it's a teacher's job to break down and well to find the barrier that is preventing them from achieving that and, and try their best to break it down so those barriers can be They can be related to engagement, so whether or not the the student is engaged, do they care about what they're learning, are they able to focus, if not, why not, if they don't care about it, why don't they care about it, how can I make them care about it, how can I change what I do so that they are engaged, have I got multiple means of engagement, so if they're not engaging in it, is it just reading text, how can I find a way for them to hear the text too, or to watch the text through a video, so are there multiple means of engagement, Do the kids care about it? And is there a way that they can engage with the work that's not just sitting at a desk, maybe sitting on the floor? So just within that realm, there is a whole heap of barriers that can be broken down to in order to make the student achieve. There are 32 different (laughs) ways that you can get the students to engage and figure out what they how to find a way to learn so we're all about not you shouldn't walk into a classroom and have and see all the students doing a task and the only way that they can communicate what they know to the teacher is through an essay for example there might be one student who's just finding writing the task of writing so overwhelming and so um, difficult but they know it they know what they want to say and they they know the content but the way in order to communicate their knowledge is not best done through handwriting 
Mm-hmm. And so the teachers are then asked, what is the goal of your task? Is it to find out how well they've understood or is it to write a report? And if the goal of the task is to find out what they understood, then maybe combining the two with a report mm-hmm. is not the most effective way for that student to excel. Not saying that they don't need to write a report. It can be done in small chunks someplace else. But if you've got a child who's really, really motivated about learning about space and the planets and they have to write a report about it, but that's why they're not engaged, mm. then why would you make them write the report about something like that? It sounds so individualised. Mm-hmm. Is that is this normal, what you're describing? Because I'm not too sure that's what I'm seeing necessarily well, in schools. Do, like, do you need extra capacity as a teacher to be able to do this? Does it depend on...? I think it takes a, a lot of collaboration between teachers. Right, okay. So five brains are better than one. Oh. And so when we plan, we're planning in a dynamic group mm-hmm. and talking about what are the best ways and the multiple means of communication that students can show. And we're always talking about our learning goals. Yep. Like what is it that really, what is it that we want the student to be focusing on and, and learning? And that guides us. And then tools such as Seesaw is fantastic to be able to have a child um, communicate their learning through multiple means. They can either take you know, a photograph of their writing or read something out loud or video record themselves. It's amazing. And utilising a tool such as that, which is one of many, is fantastic. Then what happens when they get to the end and they all have to just be sitting exams and they all have to be doing assignments? Well, that's you have to be able to teach. Like, you don't get rid of writing. Right. But that's when you focus on the learning goals, right? You've got to think about how is it that you want to assess and what is it that you're assessing the children with you can't leave anything out that's the problem and that's where a crowded curriculum becomes an issue because mm. it does feel like that teachers are just obsessed with getting through it feels like well things that i hear from teachers in australia teacher friends is just they've just got a, a lot to get through with the kids mm. so it doesn't really allow for heaps of of and I think that's where the education system is in a in pivot, okay. right? And so okay. it really needs, curriculums need to to change to be more conceptually based and not content-based. Mm. And so the minute you have a, a concept-based curriculum, that urgency to get through stuff um, is not as high. And a lot of different places are now tuning into that ideal and are changing the way they do things. New Zealand's a, a big one who's changing their curriculum to be conceptually based instead of content based. And the minute you do that, it just takes a whole level off. They're still learning mm-hmm. to write. They're still learning their maths. And it's just coming at it from a totally different perspective, which is is more holistic. Yeah. Do you think teaching has become harder? Yes. Why? It's become more complex. Mm. Does that turn you on or does it, like, do you feel excited by what's happening in education or daunted or overwhelmed by it? What do you think is the... I want to get going. You're totally excited about it. Yeah. 
I want to be part of it. I want to see how it's changing. My kids are going through it. Yeah. I love it. But I can see how it is daunting when a teacher doesn't want to have the diversity in the classroom Mm. and just does want to teach all 20 kids the same thing and see that they've achieved that and then move on to the next thing. But that's, like I said, it's our our brains are evolving Mm -hmm. and that's just not how humans are right now. Mm. Well, the world is evolving too. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I don't know why there is so much neurodiversity now. It seems to be in the media a lot that there's lots of diagnoses or there are more students. So you don't don't think when you started teaching 20 years ago that you just weren't aware of of them? I think every year I started teaching in 2001 and every single year I've had an ADHD child. In my first class I taught, I had two children with ADHD I had um, one student who had a full-time aide because he had so many things going on with him, both physical disabilities and mental disabilities. He had the mental age of a three-year-old mm-hmm. and he was adorable and I'll never forget him. And I'd absolutely loved having him in my classroom. It was a classroom of 30 kids and two with ADHD, one with severe disabilities and five who spoke no English. And on top of no English, every single one of those five kids spoke a different language (laughs) on top of that. And so there was diversity within my very first classroom 20 Mm -hmm. years ago, and there always has been ever since. It has never, ever been anything else other than that. I've always had someone, but now there's more of it. Yep. Yeah, I've never had a classroom that I haven't had someone. But how we, how I approach it has definitely changed. For the better. Yeah. Because of all the learning and all of the awareness now and yeah, I guess it just being normalised, which is a good thing. Um, I'm not too sure <laughs> if it's being normalised, unfortunately. I wish it was more so. Really? Yeah, I, I wish it, it, it – I wish teachers – and parents of the kids who are not neurodivergent just said this is our class and we're going to work with that, mm-hmm. planning it instead of pinpointing, you know, Lisa's like this and Tony Ann's like this and mm-hmm. and and really separating them. But we're getting there and it, and it's going to take some time. You have children who need to go to bed and are calling you. Um, Sorry, can you hear so, them? <laughs> no, I, mm-hmm. I can hear them. I don't know if the mic can hear them. Mama. <laughs> so I could talk to you about this for a billion years and I will. Mm-hmm. But um, we, look, I reckon if people have more questions after listening to this, we could always do a follow-up episode. Honestly, think that you should be out there talking about this stuff more. I wish I had all the answers. I mean, neurodivergency is just one thing. I mean, how schools attack sustainability is a whole other one. Oh, there's sustainability. There's, But, I mean, I wanted to ask you even about why you're not even calling teachers teachers anymore. I don't think teachers should be called teachers. Yeah. Okay, why? Quickly tell me before. 
I really think teachers, the word teacher, historically, it means that you have gotten a, a body of knowledge that you are going to give to your students. You're going to teach them what you know. And when you shift your thinking to the students that are in your classroom and to a concept-based curriculum, you really are a learning mentor and you're teaching students how to learn mm. and and they're learning how to learn mm. because it's not possible to give all the knowledge because we don't have it mm. and there's too much of it. So you really need to be an expert in, in learning and the science of learning. Mm. Um, and I think that teachers, once they shift it's a language shift and that will will pivot into how you be a facilitator and a mentor of your students and you need to teach them how to learn. learn. Yeah. And once they know how to learn, then, then, then those changes that are occurring on a weekly, daily, hourly basis in the world, they will know how to learn about them mm-hmm. and know how to respond to them they will know how to document them they will know how to investigate them to get a broad perspective they will know critical thinking how to to think about it and they will be empathetic to what to the ways that others think about them Mm. yeah I love it so much I mean I said to my son this year starting year seven you know is finding it really tricky and I said you just all all you're doing this year is is you're learning how to learn at high school and what's expected (laughs) and the fact that it's a little bit hard is good because you're learning how to figure it out you're learning how to learn he's like this guy finds it so easy it's so why do they not have to work so hard it's okay yes you're learning the skill of learning yeah and the skill of learning means being comfortable in challenge Mm. which is basically their life which is basically life yeah it, it is life but our kids, for whatever reason, think things should come straight away and, and want it very easy. And they have to be comfortable in that challenge mm. so that they can learn. We need them yeah. to be amazing learners and problem solvers. God damn it. <laughs> Thanks for the chat. If people do have more questions, they can, they can write to me yep, and I'll bring them back to you. Okay. And we can continue this conversation sometime when we're across different <laughs> hemispheres and yes. I'll be thinking about how lovely it's been to be at your house. I love you very much. Love you. Nice to meet you all. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conversations on the Road. Hey, are you following me on Instagram? I'm sharing loads of behind-the-scenes adventures right there. I'm at Lisa Cordup. Make sure you follow along. I'll see you there.